This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. The future of work is here, and Owl Labs has the advanced tech you need to empower remote and hybrid teams. Their award-winning 360-degree smart conferencing camera, the Meeting Owl Pro, boasts 1080p resolution and a crystal clear tri-speaker system to ensure that everyone is seen and heard. Read more on Owl Labs and the Work From Anywhere movement at owllabs.com. We're already counting down to Saster Annual 2020. For our loyal podcast listeners, we want to give you $100 off towards your ticket. Just buy your ticket using code FAVE100. Up today, Reich CEO, Andrew Filov. How many of you here are fellow founders? Raise your hand. That's amazing. Uh, I affectionately call you fellow grinders. I've been running Rike for about a decade right now, which dates me. And about half of the journey, I bootstrapped the company. So there are plenty of lessons learned. I'll try to summarize some of them in the short 30 minutes that I've got. The later half of the journey, uh, we actually raised money. So from, from some of the world's uh, best investors. So. Uh, I had a pleasure of uh, having Rory Driscoll on my board. He's in, he was in Box and DocuSign and many other iconic SaaS companies. And then in the last chapter that we started recently, we actually raised money from the biggest and most successful software investor in the world, uh, Vista. They got $40 billion uh, of uh, money under management. So incredible journey. I've been humble to go through that. Uh, it had plenty of ups and downs. Those of you who've been doing it for quite a while know that it's never smooth. It can be up, up and to the right, uh, but at large, at, at micro, it's always, you always have your surprises. You got to learn to, to cope with them and kind of grow a little bit of a thick skin as you, as you go through your journey. So a couple of words about myself, right? I've been in the Valley for about the same time that I've been building Rike. Fun fact, I actually, the first time world saw Rike was in Paris. Some of you might remember uh, there was a conference called Levab. Uh, raise your hand. Alrighty, uh, I date myself even more. Uh, so, anyways, uh, I presented right to the world there, got their got their award for the best B two B startup. That was the first time the world officially seen it. So it's good to be back now after twelve years and with some some good traction under the belt. And as I said, uh, we bootstrapped for about six years. And when the first when we first raised our first institutional capital, we already had thousands of paid customers. So I had a pleasure to to do both. So first question, uh, why bootstrap in, in the first place? I think for me, it was what you could call a mutual decision. So as a, as a person who uh, teleported into the valley around um, 06, 07, I didn't have any, your, your typical Silicon Valley profile. I was not a ex-Stanford, ex-Googler kind of guy. I, I did have a business experience before but it didn't count. Um, I also used to say funny things, I still do. And then the other part of the story was that our market was a bloodbath. It is, it was, and it will continue to be. The short of that story is that our product is potentially applicable to every single company in the world. 
So there are a lot of other companies that are going after the same market. They're from the smallest of the startups to the largest of the corporations. And for their venture investors, uh, it's a very, very hard bet. Uh, it's the market that's not differentiated enough, at least at the surface, unless you're deep in, in it. Uh, I was deep in it, so I knew why my product was better. Otherwise, I wouldn't start the company. It would be suicidal. Uh, but it wasn't obvious for investors, and and they always looked for, like, the next step of the traction. You know, you get to your first revenue and they're like, okay, could you be a little bit bigger? And then you get to the next side and then could you be a little bit bigger? And then like, could you get to 10 million ARR? You'll probably collapse. Uh, and then you, you get, well, maybe you could get, could you, could you not get to 20? You get there. And by the time they wake up, you're like, oops, sorry, I don't, I, I don't want your money. Uh, right. So, and, and again, it was good decision on the investor side. Uh, the market is too competitive for them to, kind of know it at the surface level. And then on my side, I didn't want to spend all the time in the world just fundraising. Um, I was actually 10 times more passionate about solving customer problems. And um, so while I did kind of dipped into fundraising in the early years, I, I was always more passionate about building something that solves customer pains and also building their, the right team behind it. So my first lesson is related to that. Your customers are your most important investors. And that's the lesson that I learned through bootstrapping and that I passed on to my team. And, and that's why for us, for, for our company, those bootstrapping years were invaluable. We now, again, operate with their largest software investor behind our back, but we built the right culture from the day one. And that stays with us as we continue to grow, as we have hundreds of employees all over the world, that culture stays with us. And as if you... If you grow companies for quite a while, you would know and understand the value of the culture. It's extremely hard to change. So what you set uh, from their get-go, cherish that and, and, and grow that. So uh, the lesson number one is, again, I was more leaning towards customers and the bootstrapping by itself forces you to treat your customers best. And a couple of uh, things there that, that, that helped me. So I was... Personally, uh, our first support rep, and while it sounds kind of funky, you know, now running the company, you would we have like 50 people in support and things like that. But in those early days, while it was made, uh, it was done out of necessity. Looking in the rear mirror, I think this is one of the best thing that could happen to us because my background is engineer, so by default, I'm leaning more towards product and you know user interfaces and all those cool technologies and things like that. Uh, but being on the front line with the customer forced me to uh, understand their pains and joys uh, in the most kind of visceral way. Uh, I felt their pain. I'm a very affectionate person. And so that helped me, even without doing separate standalone customer discovery, customer research, that helped me have that uh, contextual understanding of what the customers need need the most. And then uh, whether you do that or not, I've, it's extremely important that you spend ac that extra time with the customers. First of all, when you just start in your company, that product market feed is literally critical. Uh, think of it as a, like this second derivative of your growth trajectory. Uh, so slight changes in that compounded over five years would mean uh, whether you're sort of bust or billion dollar company. So it's extreme. And, and those those things are set in the early days through the product market feed. So that customer discovery is extremely important. And uh, very simple advice there is that 
uh, once a week, uh, give a call to a customer who either loves you or hates you, right? And, and mix both, right? So, so call to your best customers and understand why did they buy you? How are they using you? What do they like? And why did they pick you rather than competitor? And then also call the customers who did not pick you, uh, either in their upfront, so kind of look through your funnel, or they kind of picked you and then churned. And, and do one call a week and that knowledge will help you you will continue to build the understanding of your customer base, and the more calls you do, the less biased it will be. And so that will set a good foundation for you on the, on the product side. And then uh, the other lesson from there, a little bit of a counter lesson, is that you should think if you're building the business at scale, I knew that I wanted to build a large company. So while I was bootstrapping the business, I was not building kind of a sideline for, for income. Uh, I was building a company, I was building a product that I wanted literally millions of users to use. And, and if you do that, you need to avoid the trap of becoming a custom dev shop for um, a single or large customer. Because our go-to-market, we were spared that. But if your go-to-market is very high-touch, a sort of enterprise field sales, you, you will be under incredible pressure in the early days uh, to become that custom dev shop for your your largest customer or your largest product. And so it will take a lot of gut to avoid that trap and, and still try to force sort of less biased um, approach to product market fit. The other thing, uh, and this one I did step into, is that um, when I was um, in the very early days, one of their fellow very successful founder told me that he doesn't believe much in partnership, and I didn't understand this at the time. And so in the early days, uh, there's a tendency to believe that, oh, if you just list your product here uh, or there, it's, it's going to make, make your day. So we invested over the years into uh, multiple partnerships um, that ultimately brought us literally nothing. And, and all of them had great premises. Like in one case, it was a company with... Uh, where we were the, the first and only app listed in productivity category and they had like uh, 50 million users or something like that. But, but their trick is that there was no fit with the audience. And again, going back to that product market fit, unless you have that great fit, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and, and I have at least four stories like that for you. So again, uh, this is nothing that I say is an absolute truth. I, I know there are stories that are completely uh, opposite of mine, I'm just sharing sharing my story. So in my story, uh, one thing I've learned is that you your best bet is, is is yourself. Once you grow to a certain scale and size, then partnerships are extremely important. We have our full-blown BD team. We work with strategics. We work with uh, smaller companies. We work with uh, work with integration partners and size. So once you get the scale, partnerships become very important multiplier. But when you're small, um, I would take a hard time um, betting on like a single partnership as the as the main driver. And then the other trick that I've seen with um, other people's companies is uh, sometimes founders are a little bit scary to test, to truly test the market. It's kind of a little bit of a fear of rejection. So some companies go too far with just the freemium model. Freemium model is amazing to, to get, um, to spread the word out, but it also delays the time when you truly test whether or not your product delivers the value to your customers. So, uh, this one, we were pretty, uh, like we had a pretty capitalistic philosophy. We, right from the day one, we said, hey, if our product delivers value to the customers, they should be willing to pay for it. Uh, and we went even further. Um, back in the time when I started the company, uh, one of their 
most popular project management tools was Basecamp. And so it was all the rage, all the media wrote about it. And so uh, people asked me things like, oh, why, why is your product sort of, why do you charge more than Basecamp? My answer was very simple. We deliver more value, right? And so people asked me some weird questions like, why is your product different than Basecamp? I was like, well, because there is a base camp. If uh, like, why would I build something similar? There's already not just the base camp, but about hundred of clones that looks exactly like it. Like I'm, I'm not in, in that sort of business. I'm building something that solves a more scalable problem and, and has a different, different audience and has, uh, in, in my opinion, more value for, for that audience. So, uh, just avoid that freemium trap, if you will. The sooner you get that feedback loop, even if it's harsh, the quicker you learn and the, the bigger you'll ultimately become. Uh, lesson number two, uh, failure comes from anywhere. Success always comes from people. So uh, in, in terms of that, uh, fail failure can come from timing. You can have an incredible idea and fairly good product. It's just that the timing might not be right. It could be product market feed. It could be something else. But your success, you can all, at least I can always trace to the right people in the company. Um, and so I always overinvested in hiring um, the right people. My hiring playbook is very simple. I'll share it with you. It's not proprietary. I love working with smart people. And by smart, I just, I don't mean just like, you know, academic IQ. I mean, uh, also kind of street smart and being able to apply that smarts to work. I, I love working with people who are fired up and motivated and can sort of go that extra mile and who become the, have that sort of good energy around them, uh, who can work with you and, multiply your energy. And then I like working with people who get shit done. Uh, I've had unfortunate pleasure of interviewing people who knew how to talk the talk, uh, but did not, did not kind of know how to walk the walk. Um, and I'll, I'll share some tricks uh, on that side. And then uh, my personal one, one of the defining characteristics of a good Riker is that high ambition, but low ego. So we prefer to uh, not hire jerks uh, they, they become toxic for the company. And so even our most senior people uh, are eager to learn. I, I just had a call, for example, with my CRO uh, yesterday, and we were discussing some some adjustment to the sales model. And he, he was the first to say, hey, in all my career, I've never done it, but it's an interesting idea. I'm going to uh, kind of seek out uh, some benchmarks to see if we should try it. So you should look for people who, regardless of their level of seniority, I'm always eager to learn, get the feedback, um, and can, can take it constructively. And then, so in terms of getting an understanding if, if people have those qualities or not, specifically, can they, uh, walk the walk? Um, a couple of tips. One, uh, for almost every position, I like to do a deep dive. Uh, the form of that deep dive might be different. Uh, so for example, if it's a content marketer, we'll give them a written test. Uh, if it's a, uh, marketing, uh, if, if I'm hiring a CMO, it will be very different. Uh, I will ask them very, uh, but I still will ask them very specific question. Uh, we're a very transparent company, so I'll give them, uh, under NDA access to any data they need. Uh, but then I'll, I'll ask them to come back and whiteboard with me and present the solution to a fairly, uh, tough problem. And, and I'm not looking for a perfect solution. There's no, it's like, it's not a multi-choice answer. There's no right or wrong. Uh, but I will be looking to uh, understand how they think, how they operate, uh, and not just on the idea level, but also what's their management style, how do, how do they operationalize things. Even that doesn't always um, solve it. Again, I had unfortunate pleasure of doing a couple of references where you're extremely impressed by the candidate and you call their previous employer 
and they tell you, yeah, they're telling a great story. They've been telling this story for me for six months straight and nothing was done. That's a rare occasion, but, but I did have at least three or four of those. And so, so be, be careful. I'm still, I still a big believer that references are one of the most important parts of the interview process, at least at their referenceable level. Like your individual contributors might be harder to reference, but your executive should, they should be very uh, referenceable. And then, uh, when hiring, uh, that, that is, that last thing is especially common when people are coming from larger companies. Uh, so it's not about them. It's more about how they used to operate. Uh, so they may be very smart, smart and goodwill and it's just, it's a different culture in a very large company. They're hired to run the existing playbook rather than do a transformation and build the playbook. And so if you're hiring somebody who only worked at large companies, uh, one, they can make a great hire, but, uh, be, uh, careful and figure out your, your, your way to test that culture fit, uh, cause you don't want it to, to kind of to learn three months in that they're, they're operating at a different cadence. And then in terms of selling your jobs, you have something unique that nobody else has. Uh, there's a value of equity. You should definitely hire people who are fired up by your mission. Uh, they, they really want to join the company. Uh, they want to take charge and they want to take their bigger equity and participate in the upside. And a lot of them also come uh, for career growth. So for example, they might've been a director a level person at LinkedIn, and there might be another thousand directors, and then they come in at your company to, to be your, your next head of marketing a product or something like that. So for them, it's an incredible opportunity. And for you, it's an opportunity to hire somebody who on one hand seen the movie, uh, but on the other hand, you can still attract them with your, frankly, smaller comp package than, uh, than they got before. Right. Um, so next lesson, uh, use your size as, as an advantage. As was briefly mentioned, I, uh, train in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? And it's, uh, my coach, who is our 12 times world champion. He, uh, his favorite phrase is technique conquers all, right? So, uh, it's not about overpowering and you definitely cannot overpower Oracle, SAP, Salesforce, Google, what have you, right? So your size is your advantage. In my first company before Rike, I had a, I printed on the wall. Uh, the word velocity printed three times. So like velocity, velocity, velocity. Uh, that's something that larger companies don't have. Even at Rike scale, right, with 800 employees, I still try to keep that high velocity startup culture. But I do know that we don't pivot and move and, and adjust as fast as when we were a 10 people company. And we're also frankly not interested in some small opportunities, right? So there, there are some opportunities where I know we could make, uh, like million dollars. But at our scale, that doesn't make or break our annual growth plan. So if I distract my team on that small opportunity, I, I actually, it's not a good thing. I can, I can miss the, the bigger goal. It's, it's very hard to maintain high growth rate at a scale. So you got to stay very focused. And so there are plenty of opportunities on the sideline, both in terms of product and in terms of go to market that larger companies are not and shall not be interested in. And if you, tap into those opportunities, it gives you a very good growth rate. And it also, frankly, sets you up, uh, if you're interested in exit, sets you up for a good exit, because then if, if that opportunity tends to be bigger than every anybody expected, then the easiest way for a large company to source it is to acquire or acquire you and kind of uh, get that into, into their portfolio. And then when you're looking for those opportunities, uh, definitely focus on something that's differentiated. You're, again, you're not trying to out Microsoft, Microsoft, that, that's suicidal, don't do that. So think about things that are truly different. Uh, think about things that 
customers are seeking out and not finding an existing vendors uh, and use that to, to your advantage. And then um, I'm a big believer in execution as a big part of a success. Uh, I, I'm Even in my early days, I, uh, I learned very quickly that ideas are a dime a dozen. Um, I, I literally woke up every day with a new idea and my business partner back in the days taught me that it's not productive. Like you gotta stick to something, you gotta focus, you gotta operationalize and you, you, you gotta get to those goals. So I'm very big on goal setting. I could literally talk for 30 minutes about the importance and tricks and tips around that. Uh, we use uh, objectives and key results. If you never heard about what it is, please uh, read up on that. That will save you uh, years of your life. And I'm very big on measurable goals. I, I will keep pushing my team until they come back with something measurable so we can set up uh, sort of a progress tracking for that. Uh, I'm also a big believer in templatizing and automating the work. There's only so many hours in the day. Uh, if you get to scale, I know a good solution for you. You can guess what it is uh, later. And then uh, it's also extremely important for uh, for me as a, as a founder, especially in the early days, to get uh, visibility into our most important initiatives. I'm not a micromanager, but I like to understand my business and I like to know what's going on uh, so I could better connect the people and I can adjust early rather than late. Lesson number four. Uh, I'm an agile guy through and through. Um, raise your hand if you remember what, uh, what's extreme programming. All right, again, I dated myself even more. Uh, so it's, it was uh, the first uh, popular agile software development process. It was kind of, kind of funky. You were supposed to program together in pairs. Um, uh, but but it, set, it set in the motion that agile revolution, Scrum, came after that. Uh, and I'm through and through agile guy, not just in software development, but across the business. So uh, I carried that into marketing. Um, I was our first CMO, if you will, for the first eight years, not officially, but but I was a big part of building our marketing machine and I applied purely uh, a kind of engineering uh, and quant approach to that. We A-B tested everything. We optimized everything that, again, art of goal setting is extremely important. I can tell you about some tricks that we did early in the days where uh, we built predictive revenue the machine that like later there's, there's a whole category of tools right now uh, with the companies trying to do that. So that uh, scientific approach um, an agile approach to marketing was instrumental for our growth i think it's it's foundational for any digital marketing programs that you do and i went as far as literally testing the sales process i didn't have sales reps until again uh, we had thousands of customers and the way the, I, I approached it very unconventional. Your, your more conventional approach, you hire a VP of sales, they hire a bunch of sales reps, you set the comp plans, targets, and so on and so forth. I picked a couple of folks from customer success, uh, didn't give them any comp plan, said, hey, here's a bunch of trials, go call them, figure it out. And I, I baselined it with the trials that were not given to them. So it was, was a pure A-B test. Uh, and I did the uh, math, or as I call it, or the proper word would be economics, and it turned out that the money I paid them um, versus their uplift that they got in conversion and deal sizes, uh, their ROI on that was positive. And that's before they had any sales plans or training or anything. Like just purely putting them on the funnel uh, made a difference. And that to me was an answer. And from that point on, uh, I did hire proper sales reps and proper VP of sales and CROs, and we're at the point now when we have more than 100 quarter carrying reps and very sophisticated machine. But it all started with a very simple um, A-B test. 
And then last but not least, uh, at some point, uh, you, you got to switch from growth hacking into building sustainable machine that is very uh, predictable in, in the revenue generation, right? So, and you will st have to start thinking about things that are scalable. Uh, if when you're bootstrapping, you you still have to do a bunch of one-offs just because your bank account cannot go negative. So you still need to be able to make the money and pay uh, and process the payroll. But at some point, you got to start thinking bigger and think about how do you build things that that scale and that, that are predictable. And last but not least, in terms of fundraising, again, I I, I had a very successful journey there as well. Uh, their biggest lesson that I learned is that it's easiest to raise money when you don't need it. Uh, I know it sounds like a harsh truth, truth, but but it is it, it is the case. Their invest uh, investors are not a charity. Uh, they come there to make money. So the easiest way to um, to to raise is to come to them and show very provable model of how they can put one one dollar in in the business and get three out and hopefully it also scales up at least till the next round if you will it's, it does it's not kind of fully saturated yet so uh that was my 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 lesson uh on, on the fundraising as soon as i get to that predictability uh and as soon as i get to that traction uh i i, I was able to name literally name the terms uh, of the fundraising it became uh became much easier and even there um, going back to that agile thing, um, I did something that I personally call agile financing. So every round I did, I raised less than I could, uh, and I try to raise as little as possible. Like a lot of people try to raise as much as possible. I try to raise as little as possible. So uh, we, if you if you look at our revenue size to the amount of capital we raised and burned, we were usually three, literally three x better than direct comparables or competitors. So we built that culture of efficiency that allowed us to, uh, on one hand, to retain more equity. Uh, on the other hand, what, what is even more important, it just built the right set of uh, economics and the right culture that ultimately worked best for, for everybody, for our customers, for our investors, and for, for our employees. So I'm almost um, out of time. Just to summarize, the first and most important lesson is to focus on the product market fit talk to your customers, uh, use your agility and velocity to, to quickly adjust and navigate. Uh, I don't like the word pivot. Uh, if, if I look at our product, you know, it, it gradually evolved over the years. I, I like to say that I like evolution, rapid evolution as opposed to revolution. So, uh, but, but those very quick agile adjustment can, can actually carve your path in a, in a different direction than you originally thought about. Focus on hiring the right people. This will literally make or break the business. Uh, I, I told about the good stuff, uh, but there's also some some scars learned, uh, kind of earned in the journey. Like, like some of their uh, toughest things also come from your, your team. So I, I cannot emphasize how important it is to um, hire the right people upfront and, and invest enough time and effort into that. Uh, differentiate and leverage your size for that invest in what works and, and test it and do that very rapidly. And then uh, when the time is right, turn that traction into the value. OWL Labs introduces the next wave of collaborative tech with award-winning connected devices and services powered by AI and predictive technology. Winner of a CES Best in Innovation Award, the Meeting OWL Pro is a 360-degree conferencing camera that's changing the way teams connect 
no matter their location. Visit owllabs.com to learn more and visit us at Saster Annual in March.